where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hi, this is Jeff Eager with your most recent episode of the Oregon Roundup Podcast. Hope everyone's enjoying their 2023 so far. As you can probably tell, I've got a little bit of a head cold right now, so my voice is even less easy to listen to than it than it normally is. Really excited about today's episode, though. I just finished interviewing Josh Lenner, uh, who works in the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis. And Josh is one of a small number of economists that work in that office, what Josh does is he he looks at kind of the economic environment in Oregon. That analysis then feeds into projections for state revenue. That office, I would argue, is the most important office of state government in our state that you've never heard of because the legislature bases its budget up, upon the projections of that office and Josh's work in that office. And whether or not we get a kicker, a personal income tax kicker, in the event that revenues come in higher than projected is dependent upon the projections of that office and how the economy performs relative to those those projections. So I think you'll enjoy this. We talk a little bit about kind of what it means to be working in the office he works in. We talk about Oregon's population decline that we saw in the year between January 1st, 2000, pardon me, July 1st, 2021 and July 1st, 2022, which we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, but he actually knows a little more what he's talking about than I do about that. We talk about the kicker. We talk about state budgeting and forecasting and kind of some of the trends facing Oregon's economy and especially what stands out to me from talking with Josh right now is the fact that with remote working being more and more a factor, that people are able to vote with their feet much more easier, much more easily now than they used to. And COVID, of course, accelerated that trend. And the fact that we saw a dip in population here in Oregon coming out of the pandemic when people are able to vote with their feet, is that an indication then that some of the policy direction of our state is really starting to drive people away? Now, my own thinking is in many cases, it has driven people away. I know plenty of people who've left the state of Oregon in the last couple of years for political tax and lifestyle reasons to go to some of the states that are gaining in population. But it's an interesting dynamic. And I asked Josh about his view on whether Oregon will continue down the trend that California has been on in recent years, which is to say losing population, or whether this is a one-off. And he, you'll hear his, his answer, but he doesn't know and no one knows. But I think that a lot of our, the future of our state is going to depend on, on that question because losing population is not a good place for a state to be even if some people on the environmental side of things sometimes say things that indicate that it is. So that's all I've got for the intro. Go ahead and listen to this interview. Let me know what you think. Sign up for the Oregon Roundup newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com. 
If you're not a paid member, become a paid member. That helps support all the journalistic efforts we have underway, more of which forthcoming have a lot of exciting stuff on the docket for 2023, and I'll fill you in in more detail on that in the future. Now it's time to welcome Josh Lenner, who is an economist in the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis, who's here to talk to us today about what that office does and what Oregon's up against from an economic standpoint and kind of get into the weeds a little bit on what's happening with our economy, what's happening with our population, and what's happening otherwise in the state of Oregon. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Let's start off with what what do you do? So in the Office of Economic Analysis, our what we're primarily tasked with is doing the state's economic and revenue forecast for the legislature and the governor's office. We don't tell them how much you know how to spend the money, but we do make an estimate of how much money we think they will have to spend in the upcoming, you know, two-year budget period for the state. Okay, and how does that relate to the kicker? So the kicker is entirely based upon our office's forecast. We make a forecast ahead of the two-year budget period, and we say, over the next two years, here's how much money we think the state will bring in, and then after those two years are up, we see how much money was actually collected. And if the money that was collected is more than 2% above our estimate we made two years prior, then all of that money above the forecast is returned to Oregon taxpayers. I think we are due for a pretty substantial kicker. Is that this year that it'll be coming out? It'll be in 2024. When you file your taxes in the spring of 2024, that would be when the kicker this current projected kicker would be paid out to to Oregonians. And that's due to the revenues received in the 21 through 23 biennium? That is correct, right? So so that two-year budget period will end this summer on July 1st, and then we will the, the accountants will be finalizing all the numbers, you know, over the course of the summer and fall, and then we'll certify the kicker and it'll be paid out in in the spring of 2024. As I understand it, the kicker is a pretty unusual facet of our state law. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's unique in that no other state chooses to to do something like this where where in most states when we when we go to our conferences or we get on these calls with our counterparts in other states, when the money comes in more than they anticipated, that's good news because they get to keep the money and they can roll it forward into future budget periods, they can put it into capital projects, they can put it into rainy day funds for future use for for the state budget purposes in Oregon. When the revenues come in higher than our forecast, the state of Oregon doesn't get to keep it. They can't use it for other public projects. It is returned to taxpayers. The differences there are a little bit are a little bit pronounced for us relative to our counterparts in other states. Sure, sure, and certainly taxpayers may have a different perspective where they view it as a as a good thing when they get a kicker. But folks in in Salem probably would prefer to keep a hold of that money at least some of the time. I think that's fair, right? And, and the thing about the kicker is it's not that Oregonians overpaid their taxes. You know, you paid the right amount of taxes. It's that we underforecasted revenues. You know, that's a key distinction, I think, that sometimes gets lost in the, the discussion. The forecast that results in the kicker that will be received, I guess, in 2024, when was that forecast officially made? would be our forecast we made in May of 2021. So just prior to the start of the current budget period. So in May, the budget period started in July of 2021, and it runs through it runs through this summer. 
you then probably made and your office probably then made a new forecast in May ish of or will make a new forecast in May ish of twenty three. Exactly, right? So this forecast that we'll do in May of this year will then form the basis for the next two year budget for the state and the kicker calculation will be made during you know, through twenty twenty five and then if there is a kicker again or not, that would potentially be paid out in the spring or the filing season in twenty twenty six. Uh, so it seems like then the, your office or the office in which you work, there's a lot of pressure you guys are under because basically your forecast will determine not just as in as maybe the, the case in other states, you know, how much of a surplus the state has moving forward, but, you know, whether the, the state, how much revenue the state actually gets to keep. Do, is, that, is that right, do you think? In a sense, yes. You wouldn't know it based upon our recent track record where we've been considerably under forecasting the economy and state revenues in particular. From a pure forecasting perspective, there's a little bit of a silver lining to the kickers. It really does try to make us put our best guess down on paper where we try and actually do as good of a job as we can. Whereas, again, maybe some of our counterparts in other states, they can lowball it so that, you know, if things come in a bit better than expected, oh, they're like, they get to go to policymakers and say, oh, there's more money for public projects and things like that, as opposed to saying there's less money. Like the incentives there really matter because if you say, oh, we have to make budget cuts, that's a much worse discussion than saying, oh, we have a little bit extra money. You know, maybe we can fund schools a little bit more, do a new bridge or something like that. Right. There'd be an incentive incentive in a way for your office to make the the forecasts high so that if those come through then you know the state has budgeted correctly and there's not money that comes out via the kicker to taxpayers on the other hand what you're hedging against i assume is if you forecast too high then the budget's off and there's a shortfall and people are scrambling that's right. In, in, in shortfalls, especially, you know, we have a discrete two-year budget period for the state. And if you, you don't really realize you have a shortfall until the last six months, it's hard to make it's hard to make really big budget changes over a short period of time with, you know, balanced budget requirements and things like that. And that's something that became an issue for the state back in the early 2000s. We had to borrow some money to get out of get out of a biennium and then had to pay that off for, you know, 10 or 20 years after that. Sure. Why do you think that your, you know, your office's forecast from May of 21 was relatively low? So what changed during the biennium that ended up with the situation we're in where taxpayers will get a kicker? I think a lot of it, to, to, to be honest, has to do with non-wage forms of income, taxpayer behavior, asset markets doing a lot better than than expected, our forecast for the underlying economy was a little low, right? You know, job growth has been a little bit better than anticipated. Wages have been better than anticipated. That, that's contributing to it. So a fundamental underestimation of the, the strength in the economy and the recovery that we've seen. But then on top of that, we layered, you know, record stock markets last year where capital gains in Oregon, realized capital gains on tax returns were a record high. And then last year, they increased 80% off of the record high. So to these numbers, these astronomical amounts that we had had never seen before and quite honestly hadn't fathoms, right? So the stock market went up nearly 30%, and then capital gains went up 80%. So like these, these disconnects between 
some changes in the underlying state of the economy plus taxpayer behavior on top of that really drove a lot of that high income and those non-wage forms of income much higher than we, we had anticipated at the time. In terms of non-wage income, would that be an example of that be, you know, some of the emergency relief payments and whatnot that people receive from the federal government? That would be a part of it. But I think that the big part there would be that due to all of the federal aid earlier in the pandemic, it really filled all of the holes in the economy from a from a high level macro perspective. I'm not saying every single person was made whole or every single business was made whole, but from a high-level perspective, it filled all the holes, and so then we had growth on top of that. And so instead of expecting losses to be kind of made up for with recovery rebates and paycheck protection program loans and things like that, those more than filled the hole, and then we got really good growth on top of it. So so absolutely, I think that was a key factor in the strength in the economy, maybe less so in the exact nature of the tax payments we did receive last year. There's a component of this, and this may be outside of what you deal with directly, but as I understand it from a budgetary standpoint, one of the challenges that Oregon is going to face is the fact that it got a lot of kind of pandemic-related, either directly or tangentially, support from the federal government in the form of Medicaid and other financial supports that are mostly going, if not entirely, going to be drying up in in this upcoming biennium if they haven't already. Do you have any insight into what that's going to do to the state's budget? You know, we deal with the revenue side of things and not the spending, the expenditure side of things. But if you but if you listen to the budget folks, both in the in the executive branch and in the legislative branch, the budget folks, you know, they will say that there's a little bit of a, a projected deficit in the budget. It's not as big as maybe we saw back in the Great Recession or anything like that. But the slowdown in state revenue growth that we have in our forecast, plus the going away of the federal funds is expected to result in a little bit of a, a deficit as of today. But of course, the legislature is about to meet. And then over the next six months, they're going to find a way to balance that budget. I guess that transitions pretty well into a discussion more on the revenue side, which is what you actually work on. As I understand it, your office, and maybe you individually, are now predicting a likely recession in 2023 in the state of Oregon. Do I have that right? You do. Our, our most recent forecast does have a recession more likely than not. A recession, if it happens this year, would tend to reduce <laughs> revenues to the state of Oregon. Is there a concern that you taking that possibility together with the kind of drying up of federal COVID funds, are we looking at a real budgetary issue over the next two years between those two factors? Potentially. I, but I would say, again, I would defer on the spending side to all my counterparts over that work on, on the budget. But some of the latest numbers I've seen from them that they're talking about include our forecast that has the recession in it. So that's already factored into some of their calculations as as the governor. She's working on putting her budget together right now as we speak. And then the legislature will start next month starting to piece together their budget. So So that is already factored in. To, the recession impact is already factored into a lot of these revenue discussions. Why is it that you think we are more likely than not going to experience a recession in 23? First, I would say no forecast is certain. I don't think it's not a slam dunk that we'll see a recession. The biggest challenge has been that I don't think we have a historical example of where we're in this inflationary environment 
the economy slows down, inflation slows down, but doesn't fall into a recession, and we just kind of coast into like a, a you know a normal expansion or a full employment economy without a recession bringing the inflation down, especially when we have the Federal Reserve raising interest rates at the fastest pace than they have since you know in the last forty or fifty years. Like we don't have an example of this happening, so that's what makes economists pretty pessimistic: is that inflationary economic booms have historically never ended well. So that's the situation we find ourselves in today. The question is whether we're going to buck that historical trend and not have a recession but an ongoing economic expansion or whether we'll succumb to kind of that that historical pattern we've seen. And and so right now our office and most economists would agree is that a recession is more likely than not for that reason. There's been kind of a national discussion about the definition of a recession over the last year in kind of the commonly held understanding, or at least my understanding, is that the technical definition of a recession was was a two months or two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. And then there was some debate about whether that's actually the the definition. And I don't talk to that many economists and I'm talking to one now. So maybe you could, uh, you could uh, sure. educate me a little bit on that. So I will say it is a common rule of thumb that two quarters of negative GDP, negative real GDP, constitutes a recession, right? That's a rule of thumb that a lot of people have used. And I believe there's actually a couple countries that might even use that as their official definition. In the United States, that is not the official definition of a recession. The official definition of a recession is kind of whatever this group of academic economists and researchers called the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, they are the official arbiters of recession start and end dates. And what they say is a recession is more than a couple of months of broad-based declines in economic activity. And they look at four primary data series to gauge that. One is jobs. One is income growth, excluding federal transfer payments, so direct federal aid. That includes Social Security, Medicaid. It includes the recovery rebates we got during the recession or the pandemic. So look at jobs, income, consumer spending, volumes of spending, and then industrial production. Right? Those are the four indicators that they look at. And while we did have two quarters negative GDP to start the year in 2022 – None of those four indicators that they use to gauge broad-based economic activity declined at all, right? So that is why we did not have a recession last year, even though we did technically meet that rule of thumb definition that some people use. Okay, thank you. So to the degree we have a recession, either under the technical definition or the colloquial understanding in 23 on, on a national basis, do you have any thoughts about how Oregon will fare relative to the rest of the country in a downturn like that? So historically, Oregon, we're more volatile than the typical state. We're more boom-bust. Our, our recessions tend to be deeper, and our expansions tend to be faster than the typical state or the nation overall. And there's two primary reasons for that. One is our industrial structure. We're still a state that makes things. Now, our manufacturing sector is smaller than it used to be. It's been shrinking as a share of our economy for the, for the last half century, just like it has nationwide, but it's still relatively larger in Oregon. And manufacturing, constructions, natural resources, these goods-producing industries are more volatile over the business cycle, and they're more volatile especially when interest rates increase like they have 
in the past year. So, so I think that component alone would tend to make Oregon more volatile whenever that next recession comes, whether it's this year or it's in the future. That would be a reason why we would have a deeper recession. And then when those things turn around, as interest rates get lower and people start spending money again in an expansion, those things would revive and come back faster than in the typical state. And then the other reason why we tend to be more volatile than the U.S. is population growth, in that people hunker down during recessions and don't move as much. And then when job opportunities are more plentiful, they move in greater numbers in search of those better economic opportunities. And so migration itself is pro-cyclical, meaning it slows in recessions and accelerates in expansions. And so that combination of our the makeup of our economy plus the population growth, the migration growth trends, make Oregon more boom-bust than the, than the typical state. And so I would think moving forward, we would tend to be more volatile than the U.S. or the typical state for those reasons in the future like we have historically. But that wasn't the case during COVID. During COVID, we had an average-sized recession. Instead of having a deeper recession, we had an average-sized recession. And then, of course, our population growth hasn't rebounded like it had traditionally has during an early stages of an economic expansion. So if, if our population growth doesn't revive like it usually does, that would potentially lessen the downside risk in a future recession because we wouldn't lose that leg of the stool of growth. We'd only kind of be looking at our industrial structure and not our industrial structure plus population growth. That's a great segue, Josh, into some more kind of discussion about the correlation between population and economic growth. I'm, I'm going to just read for the listeners a tweet from you just to queue up this issue from December 22nd. This was in response to some new census data showing Oregon had a decline in population between July, 20, July 1st, 2021 to July 1st, 2022. Josh has a great Twitter feed for anyone on Twitter. His handle is at Leonard, J-W-L-E-H-N-E-R-J-W. So this is Josh's tweet about that story about the census numbers. Siren (laughs) emoji. Yikes. Census estimates Oregon population declined in 2022. No rebound as of July 1st. This is a two or three alarm fire. Negative 17,000 net domestic migration. If 2023 doesn't rebound, it's a five alarm fire for the economic outlook. If you don't mind just kind of summarizing what the new census data showed relative to Oregon and why you think it's a two or three alarm fire from an economic standpoint. I I should clarify that is from my – that tweet is from my personal account. It does not represent the official views of the state of Oregon. I did write something more official on our website, on our blog last week, that doesn't use the word yikes or siren emojis, but I stand by those. What is the uh, URL for the your office's webpage? Because it's actually, there's some really good stuff on that site. I would say of all the State of Oregon websites I've been on, that site actually has the best information that I've come across. So listeners may be interested to check it out. Our blog, our website is, think of it as a Substack before Substacks existed. Uh, you can sign up for email alerts, is OregonEconomicAnalysis.com. Over on the right-hand side, you can put your email in and sign up for it, and then you can just treat it like a Substack. There's a lot of things to talk about with population growth. One, we care about it from a social and community perspective. If more people are choosing to leave the state than are choosing to move here, they're voting with their feet. From a social and community perspective, I think that's a problem. 
from an economic perspective, there's a lot of things that go into it. Again, our, our job is to forecast the state's economy and tax revenues over a 10-year period. That's what we're tasked with. We do a 10-year forecast. And baked into our assumptions and baked into our forecast has been this you know, relatively strong net migration to the state of Oregon. And it matters because who moves? It's predominantly 20 and 30-somethings. They're moving here for a job or in search of a job primarily. And so they move when they're young. They stay. They have families. They raise their kids. But they're also working and providing their labor for Oregon businesses. And so that increases our economic activity at a faster rate than in most other states. And so if that's not happening, if we're seeing a more stagnant population and not a growing population like we have previously assumed, that means our labor force is growing at a slower pace. That means our local businesses can hire and expand at a slower pace. That means their sales will increase at a slower pace. And then all of that translates into slower growth for state revenues and, and, and municipality revenues as well. So so that's why we really care about it from our day job perspective. But I don't, I don't want to lose sight of the, the social or community aspect of it either. Sure. Um, what, so if this was included in the census data or you know it otherwise, did uh, in that kind of year period between July 1, 21 and July 1, 22, did the 20 and 30-somethings uh, come in fewer numbers to Oregon, but they were offset or or were they off or were those people that in migration offset by more people, potentially other demographic groups leaving? That's right. So, so unfortunately, we don't know right now. Right now, all we have is total top line state level estimates from the Census Bureau. We don't even have county numbers from the Census Bureau yet. That's coming out in March. Um, and then it won't be until this fall that we'll get some of those socioeconomic characteristics of, of the migrants as well, whether it comes to age or race, ethnicity or educational attainment or income or whether they're homeowners or whatnot. Like all of that detail about who moved and the characteristics of them, we won't know until the fall. Um, so that's something I'm absolutely keeping an eye on. I, I, you need to know about is it is it really just a broader slowdown in in-migration or a bigger acceleration in out-migration? Or are we seeing changes in the compositions of who's moving either in or out? And, and I can't answer that question now. What I can say is in the 2021 estimates, which were slow growth for Oregon from both Portland State University's estimates and the Census Bureau estimates, they're positive but slow, um, is, is we still saw a strong net influx of 20 and 30-somethings, particularly those with college degrees. So that wasn't necessarily like that, that we saw any real changes in that kind of, you know, largest cohort of people who move. We hadn't seen change there. So maybe that points towards, um, you know, uh, younger families or maybe retirees or something like that being the, being more of a slowdown. But in terms of the 2022 numbers, uh, we have no idea at this moment. So I'm talking to you from Bend. We obviously have experienced a lot of population growth in recent years and have, for the most part, over a period of time here, the last couple decades. I lived here and I was on the city council here during the Great Recession. And that kind of that population growth pattern broke and, and went in reverse during the Great Recession. And it seems to me that at least in Bend, and I think this is probably the case, less so the case in other parts of the state, that a lot of our economy 
is based upon people moving to Oregon from other places and buying homes, building homes here and, you know, bringing their businesses with them, maybe especially recently telecommuting from here. And it seems to me that if, in fact, the kind of net in-migration pattern is kind of breaking down from a state level, that we may be in for kind of a tough a tough time, especially for those parts of the state that are more reliant on the in-migration than other parts. Does that make sense to you? It makes total sense to me. I think the challenge is, again, we don't have the 2022 numbers for all counties in the U.S. We get that from the Census Bureau. What I think would be fair characterization for what we know of today is we're kind of talking about the exact opposite of the Great Recession. So what happened in the Great Recession was those high-flying, fast-growing, peak of the housing bubble communities of which Deschutes County Bend metropolitan area was one of the 50 largest housing bubbles in the nation, right? Medford was too. In Oregon, we had two of the 50 largest housing bubbles and bust in, in the nation. And so that pattern definitely played out. You can definitely see that in the data. But what we had at the Oregon level was Portland. Portland was, you know, the Portland metro area is half the state. Half the people live there and half the jobs are there and that sort of stuff was growing and was thriving. And it was more than able to offset the weakness from places like Bend in Medford. Right now, the reverse is true where the weakness is coming from those largest metropolitan areas around the country, not just Portland and Seattle, but also the urban cores of Atlanta in Nashville in Orlando in Dallas. They all lost population earlier in the pandemic as well. Whether that's continued in 2022, I don't know yet. We'll see the data in a couple months. But it's, it's, it's the reverse where you're kind of banking on the suburban communities and the sort of medium-sized metropolitan areas to offset the weaknesses in our urban cores. I wouldn't be too worried about, you know, the Bend metro plunging, but even Bend has been, at least based upon the estimates we have, has not necessarily showed the same sort of growth in recent years that they did, say, you know, in the mid-2000s or 2010s. Kind of more generally with this this population report that came out and that you tweeted about, one thing that kind of struck me is from my perspective, Oregon has been kind of following California from a from a political and a policy direction in recent years. And I don't expect you to opine on that stuff. I don't want you to get in trouble with your your superiors. And, you know, a number of years ago, California flipped into a net population loss and they, they continue to lose population in this most recent numbers. Now Oregon is doing the same. And we'll see, maybe this is a one-off. Maybe it turns around and Oregon starts gaining population. But do you see any pat like in your role as an economist, do you see any patterns kind of connecting the states that are, have lost population in the last year, either climate or policy climate or economic climate or anything else in those states that have gained population? At the base, at the core of the changes, at least upon available data we have today, population changes we've seen during the pandemic is impacts of working from home and housing affordability, right? Very much the population growth patterns, again, certainly last year's and whether these new numbers totally bored out, we can't say for certain until the census releases all the county and metro data here in a couple of months. It was very much a urban, suburban, rural dynamic to the patterns of growth, where the urban cores of all the, almost all of the major metropolitan areas in the nation declined. The suburbs grew, 
and then the secondary metropolitan areas and the rural communities grew at faster rates than they usually do, right? So we saw this big exodus out of the downtowns and into everywhere else in the country. And that, you know, has an impact and certainly had an impact in Oregon, and I think that's continuing. The question is whether that weakness and slowdown has spread to more than just being about the downtowns. And and that's an open question that I'm very much interested in seeing what future data says about that. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. And I, I know we're, we don't know all the data yet, but, you know, just looking at this map, Oregon, California, both have urban centers. They, they both have suburbs. They both have rural areas and both lost population. But states like Texas, Arizona, Idaho, Montana also have Although in some cases, maybe Texas is a better example here. Texas has a bunch of urban areas, but also a bunch of suburbs and a bunch of rural areas. And Texas gained net over the last year while Oregon and California lost net. Yes. And in, in the Intermountain West states, right, has saw an acceleration during the pandemic, whereas the coastal states saw deceleration, no question about it, and maybe even losses. The question there is what is driving that, right? Is it really about working from home and housing affordability? You know, if that's the answer, if that's the primary driver, and I think it probably is the primary driver, that's a fairly concise and easy story to tell, right? Oregon, we have among the worst housing affordability in the entire country. And if you no longer have to be on the West Coast where direct flights to major employers in LA, San Francisco, Seattle, or whatnot, if you don't have to have those direct flights making it easier on your life, then you can move to Boise or Bozeman or, or Salt Lake or whatever. Not that direct flights don't exist there either, but like you, you can be further afield, farther afield, and be, if you don't have to be in the office nearly as much as you used to. And, and then, again, you'd be moving for, for housing affordability reasons because basically everywhere else has better affordability than we do. And so, so if that's the primary answer of what's going on, again, that's a fairly concise and simple story to tell. It doesn't mean the policy solutions are easy necessarily, but it's, it's an easy story to tell. If it's more than that, if it's you know what I say on our website officially is like insert your favorite discussion piece here, your talking point, whether it's whether it's crime or homelessness or drug use or political beliefs or or education or something like whatever that topic is that that people like to talk about and they matter for our everyday li- lives. If it's more about that then it's a much harder conversation and maybe the policy goals needed to address them are are even more challenging than if it is more like we just need to build more housing and help on affordability right like that 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 discussion is a much harder one for me to have, especially because a lot of those things are, are quality of life discussions are a lot more squishy, right? They're more subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder versus like if it's just nuts and bolts, it's about we don't build enough housing. It's a simpler from a from an economist or data perspective. Sure. It's simpler at least theoretically to address it, but building more houses in Oregon has proven to be a, a pretty pretty heavy lift for a long time for a bunch of different reasons. So I guess you know one way to conceptualize it maybe is that it's become kind of the the teleworking revolution that was expedited by COVID has made it easier for people to vote with their feet as you put it to leave places that for whatever reason whether it's housing prices or political stuff or policy stuff or taxes or just quality of life 
they're able to bail out a lot easier now than previously when they had to basically have a job to go to. So a couple things to keep in mind is I think I think I think that's a great that I would agree with the summary. The question is okay, so if that's true, if if we do think that's primarily what's going on, is this more of a one-time shock, one-time adjustment, and moving forward we'll see more normal patterns, or is this just the start of it, and and we'll start to see more people move farther farther into the Intermountain West or into the Midwest or something like that, because there's really not a difference. If you don't have to go into the office, it doesn't matter if you're an hour away or 10 hours away. You know, it doesn't matter because you don't have to go, and so I think that's an open question, and then that'd be the primary primary thing there. I think that is the big question, and kind of you know, comparing Oregon to California, for example, that California has been in kind of this pattern of a population loss for, for some time now. And that's certainly consistent with the explanation of high housing costs. And to the degree now that Oregon's housing costs, and certainly in places like Bend and Portland, have come up significantly over, the re, over recent years, you know, we're not the, by no stretch are we a bargain anymore. I, I mean, I think... Not so long ago, we were a bargain relative to California, but that's less the case now. And certainly compared to places like Idaho, or at least some parts of Idaho, some parts of Montana, Texas, et cetera, we are very expensive in Oregon. So do you see any reason why, you know, theoretically, Oregon might not follow in California's footsteps, you know, barring some solution to housing affordability here that we've been unable to crack up till now. It's important to keep in mind that, you know, the historical patterns has been so 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 we're banking on a rebound in our forecast, right? We still have a rebound in population growth in our forecast. Our demographer, he hasn't had a chance to update it. Our next forecast is going to come out, you know, mid-February, late February. You know, I haven't had a chance to really sit down with him and get his thoughts on all of this and what he's thinking moving forward. But we have always seen in good economic times, we have always seen in Oregon's recorded history, more people move here than move away, right? We've always seen a net positive in migration to the state of Oregon. The only time in our recorded history we didn't was in the early 1980s when we had this severe recession locally and the timber industry was facing a lot of challenges and record high mortgage rates and things like that, which was not a good economic time period. And then in 2022, if the census estimates are accurate, right? Like if we, if, and, and so those are the only times on record that we have seen this in the state of Oregon. So we think historically the rebound should ex- occur. Question is whether we're at a structural breaking point or an inflection point, and we're now, this is the new normal. That's always a really hard thing to forecast, but we have to be open to the possibility that it could be. I think the good news would be whatever the reason, more people voting with their feet to move away than move here, whether it is about housing, whether it is about other social or societal issues and challenges related to quality of life concerns or things like that, addressing any of those things is a good idea, right? And whether that turns around the migration numbers or not, you know, it would still make the lives of current residents better. So so if we had more housing options and better affordability, even if that doesn't bring more migrants in, that still makes your and I lives easier every day when we have to pay the mortgage or pay the rent. If we work to reduce crime or reduce, you know, getting services and housing for our homeless neighbors and things like that, addressing that, even if that doesn't ultimately result in faster migration in the years ahead, that still improves the lives of our neighbors and helps our community. From a macro standpoint, from your view right now, 
what are some strong points for Oregon's economy? Like, what does Oregon have going for it from an economic standpoint? And what are some kind of weak points that we have, kind of headwinds that we have that maybe, you know, they're the national things going on, but maybe some things where relative to our peers, we have good stuff going for us or bad stuff going for us? So in terms of like industry or industrial structure, things that we have really strong strengths in, certainly historically, would be timber and wood products. It would be natural resources more broadly with, you know, wheat out east and fishing on the coast and dairy and stuff. Like we have a lot of strengths in those and food food manufacturing more broadly. And then high-tech hardware, so semiconductors being the, the biggest one component of that, but we also have some aerospace and, and boat building and shipbuilding, like just high-tech manufacturing type stuff and, and metals. Like those are all been strengths in Oregon's economy. The challenge with those is none of those are fast-growing industries anymore. Obviously, the story of wood products in the last 40, 50 years has been down. It's been flat to de- flat at best down most years. And so our strengths from an industrial structure perspective are kind of going to be more of not necessarily headwinds moving forward in the years ahead or decades ahead, but, but they're not going to be the tailwinds that they had historically been. So that's a challenge. That's both our strength and our challenge. The other part would be we've always been a place that people want to live. And in particular, young people and educated young people in particular have always wanted to live in Oregon. And so that's what also makes the negative population estimate last year potentially worrisome if it becomes if that is the new normal or the new trend is that means that lifeblood of the economy of of young smart people voting with their feet to live here driving future growth starting new companies when they get here that sort of stuff if that has all been downgraded relative to expectations that's a huge problem for the way you know someone like me thinks about the the economy and state revenues in the years ahead Sure. That makes sense. We'll find out about the direction of our state in the coming years. Well, Josh, I really want to thank you for your time today. I think I've learned, well, I know I've learned a lot from talking with you, and I'm sure that our listeners will as well. Is there anything else you want to say before we uh, sign off here? Thanks for having me. I think I think the outlook is still bright. I think, you know, Oregon outlook is still bright. I just the population numbers got me a little pessimistic. You saw my tweet. Our forecast is still for growth. And if it's not, then then we have bigger challenges on our on our hands. Sure. Well, thank you, Josh. Appreciate you coming on the podcast and maybe sometime you can come on again with some good news. Yeah, we'd be happy to chat again. So thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. That was a really informative conversation that I had with him, at least for me in these interviews, what I'm trying to do is really ask the stuff I'm curious about and hope to get some stuff that you're curious about answered in the process. And Josh certainly is on in the kind of internal workings of a lot of what makes a huge difference for Oregon. And I think his insights on things like population loss on kind of our economic situation in in the state in general were really informative to me. And I hope they were to you. I plan to do more of these kinds of interviews going forward. I think that they kind of fill a gap of having people on a show like this to ask questions that people that maybe aren't progressive might ask people like Josh and just get the information out there. And because I think that with the media environment that we have right now, especially in Oregon, no one's coming at this stuff from that perspective. And it doesn't mean you need to be combative 
what information can be brought out from these folks who are helping to make these decisions, maybe they're not getting asked by other people. So I hope you'll agree that it was an informative discussion. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.